Doubtless there are souls here that are weary and troubled. Perhaps there is no light in the darkness you see. Then tonight, let us turn together to the Word of God where we can see our Savior on full display. Our Lord there manifested to us through His Word so that we might find hope and assurance even in the midst of darkness and turmoil in our lives. I would ask that you turn with me to the book of Ruth, Ruth chapter 1, Ruth chapter 1 this evening we will begin in verse 19 and I would ask that if you are able this evening that you stand with me in honor of the reading of the word of God. Now the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. And it happened when they had come to Bethlehem that all the city was excited because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? But she said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. Now they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. You may be seated. And let's once again turn to the Lord in prayer this evening. Lord, we are grateful for yet another opportunity to come together with your people under this roof to sing your praises, to think about your glories in song as we anticipate the day when we will be forever with the Lord, to feast in the house of Zion where there is no fear No sorrow, no death, no pain. And yet, Lord, we know that we are not there yet. And so we must continually turn our eyes to you, O Lord, as we struggle through this sin-broken world. I pray then that you would help me to be faithful, to point people's eyes to Christ this evening. That we would... See truly his wonderful face written in your word. And that by it we would be encouraged, even conformed to his glorious image, so that we may be better prepared for the day of his return. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, if you have ever had the pleasure, I guess it would be a pleasure of Uh, attending a class reunion, you will understand that at such reunions, each person comes there with an agenda. Believe it or not, research has actually been done on the topic of of high school, of class reunions. Probably your tax dollars hard at work there to to fund such research. But nonetheless, um, the researchers have, have asked questions and done surveys and compiled data to understand some of the dynamics that goes 
into and is behind uh, a class reunion. And uh, it's interesting what they've found. This wouldn't, it will not surprise you to, to, to think and understand that everyone there is out to prove something. They're out to prove that they have made it, that they're a success, that they've lived up to the hype that uh, they generated for themselves, perhaps, in high school. They want to show that they are moving ahead in the world, that they're making good money, that they're driving a nice car, and so on. But the research has shown that the surprising primary measuring stick that people evaluate themselves and others by at such reunions is not their job, not how much money they make, not the car they're driving, not the clothes they're wearing, but it's their families. Are you married? How are your kids doing? Have you been divorced? Is your spouse attractive? And so on. And so people are always striving to make a good show. But what do you do when you're forced back into that situation and things hadn't exactly gone the way that you had hoped? The same research also shows that those whose marriages have failed or those who are not making the kind of money that they would like are the ones that are least likely to actually attend their class reunions. They simply stay home because they don't want to face the shame and embarrassment of having to own up to the fact that they haven't succeeded in the way that their peers have. But what if staying home wasn't an option? What if you had to go back to confront Friends and neighbors is a failure. What if your shame had to be put on full display to everyone that had known you and everyone saw and understood that your life was in shambles? For many of us, that would represent our worst nightmare, having to to go back and, and own up to all of our failures in front of those that we had been friends with or perhaps even long forgotten. And yet that is exactly what Naomi experiences when she completes her long journey here back to Bethlehem. A reunion, but an unhappy reunion. A reunion in which she is forced to own up to all the suffering that she has endured. And so as we see the conclusion here of the first chapter in the book of Ruth, we see that this opening scene, this opening act has, has come full circle. The scene ends where it begins, back in Bethlehem. It's where they had set out from in the beginning, with a family, with Elimelech, with two sons. But now the characters are different. Instead of Elimelech and their two sons, Naomi returns to her home with only a foreign daughter-in-law. Whereas Naomi had left in hopes of preserving her family, in hopes of keeping them alive through this famine, she returns having lost the very thing that she was trying to save. And so this is a solemn homecoming. When Naomi first wanders into the city, empty-handed and haggard, people can hardly believe their eyes. Is this Naomi? Is this the woman who left us so many years ago? Has she finally returned to us? Naomi's arrival had caused quite a stir in the city, and much, I'm sure, to Naomi's disappointment. She had perhaps hoped that she wouldn't be well-remembered, that maybe they wouldn't recognize her, that she could slip in unnoticed, but that was not the case. In fact, we're told the whole city here is excited on their account. And that excitement, the buzz about her arrival, 
sets up this tense encounter that we're going to examine tonight. As we consider Naomi's words, I want us to see three things that I think are crucial to understanding how to rightly handle the hard times that come our way. And they will inevitably come. Make no mistake about that. There are going to be hard times that come our way in one fashion or another. Death, disease, financial hardship, strained marriages, wayward children. These are but a few of the things that will afflict and torment the soul. All these things can cause anguish and bitterness. And so bitterness is unfortunately an unavoidable part of life in a sin-stricken world. We will encounter it. But how we handle it makes all the difference. And so before the day of bitterness comes, we need to understand these things about it so that we can be adequately prepared when it comes to handle it. We need to understand that bitterness produces blindness. Bitterness provokes blame. And bitterness precedes blessings. Bitterness produces blindness. It provokes blame. And it precedes blessings. As we examine Naomi's words, the one thing that we are left certain of beyond a shadow of a doubt is that Naomi is bitter. She confesses as much with her own lips And she even embraces bitterness as her new name. In the Hebrew, this contrast could not be more stark when she responds to the women of her city. Naomi, in Hebrew, means pleasant, beautiful, or good. Mara means to be bitter. Bitterness has become her identity. No longer, she says, can you call me pleasant or beautiful or good. That name doesn't apply anymore. Don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter. Because that's what I am. That's who I am. That's the identity that she has come to embrace because her bitterness has utterly consumed her. Furthermore, the author builds upon another contrast within the text. Just last week, in just a few verses prior to this statement by Naomi, we considered the lovely proclamation by Ruth, her pledge of commitment to Naomi, her people, and most importantly to Yahweh. However, in Naomi's speech, the author provides a mirror image contrast. Naomi's speech is also arranged in the same linguistic pattern that Ruth's is. It's arranged in a chiasm in which Yahweh's covenant name is found right smack dab in the middle. Just like Ruth's. It's arranged, there's a, there's a prologue in, that corresponds to an epilogue at the end. There's two middle statements in which a different name for the Lord is used. The, the Hebrew word Shaddai, which is translated here as Almighty. And then right in the middle, the heart of her statement, is the Lord's covenant name, Yahweh. Just as it is right smack dab in the middle of Ruth's statement. And so there's a contrast being made here between these two women and where they are spiritually this point in time. Unlike Ruth's pledge of faith, Naomi's speech is a diatribe against the Lord, whom she reasons has dealt bitterly with her. Now we can understand perhaps the the pain that Naomi is suffering here. If you've 
experienced loss or if you've witnessed someone who've experienced, who's experienced the, the death of a close loved one, then, then you've perhaps seen this as well. As a young man, I remember seeing my great-grandmother bury both her beloved daughter as well as her husband of over 50 years within just a couple of years of one another. In her lifetime, she buried two of her children. I remember her anguish in that, saying that a mother should not have to bury her children. And the memory that I have at the funeral is, is seared into my mind of her leaning over the casket and weeping uncontrollably and having to be restrained lest she actually fall into the casket because of her overwhelming grief. We've seen it. We know what it looks like. We can understand Naomi's suffering, having lost not only her husband, but also both of her children. Loss and anguish. It's a terrible thing. But you see, we must always stay on guard. Because when bitterness becomes the lens through which we view everything else, we soon become blinded by it. It soon builds walls over our eyes that will not allow us to see anything else without looking through this lens of bitterness. And so we cease to find joy in anything else. We're blinded to everything around us. We don't just feel bitter, we become bitter. We see in this text that Naomi was blinded to several important things. First, she was blinded concerning the Lord's provision. She says that the Lord has brought her home empty. But this isn't entirely true, is it? She's not empty. She has Ruth. Though here she can't even bring herself to acknowledge this woman. We looked last week, the the last verse of the previous section, the last words concerning Ruth after Ruth's magnificent statement is she, talking about Naomi, she stopped speaking to her. If you're going to follow me, that's fine, but don't expect anything from me. She was blinded to the Lord's provision of this daughter-in-law. The Lord had also provided food. There's food in the land that they've returned to, and they've returned just at the beginning of the harvest season here. As, As Naomi walked into town, she would have doubtless passed the very fields that would sustain her and her daughter-in-law. Fields that were brown and dry the last time she had seen them are now full of life. There's barley in the fields. There's food that they can have that will keep them alive. Yet the only thing she sees is her bitterness, her loss. Bitterness also produces blindness to the Lord's protection. She and Ruth had been in a dangerous situation. They were widows in a foreign land, and yet they made it safely back to Bethlehem. We know that during the time of the judges, the time in which this story takes place, vulnerable women were not safe, not even in the land of Israel. We see story after story, account after account, of how vulnerable women are oppressed and abused and taken advantage of by the very people who should be protecting them. And so the fact that these two women made it from Moab back to Bethlehem safely, that in and of itself is quite an accomplishment. And here in Bethlehem, according to the law of God, there should be further protection and provision for them. 
The Lord had established His law generations ago at Sinai that that says that widows are to be cared for, that there's to be food put back by every farmer so that the widows, the orphans, the sojourners can eat. And so the Lord had provided for and protected Naomi. But she was also blinded to the Lord's plan. She couldn't see beyond her immediate circumstances to think that that maybe the Lord is doing a work in her life that is for her good. And not only for her good, but for the good of all Israel. He's already showing he's, he's bringing food back into the land. The famine is over. His hand of blessing has been restored to the people. God is doing a work in Israel in this day. But there's more going on than even Food being back in the fields. The Lord has a plan. And he's going to accomplish it through this Moabite daughter-in-law that Naomi can't even bring herself to recognize. We too have difficulties seeing God's provision, his protection, and his plan when we are bitter. It's hard to see through that. It's hard to see through it when we are so pained, so anguished. We want everyone to recognize how pained and how anguished we are. So we don't let them forget it. We talk about how wrongly we've been treated. What a bitter hand we've been dealt. We complain, which we'll get to in just a minute. We are blinded by bitterness. We have to be careful. Because this can so easily happen when we feel like we have been treated unfairly, unjustly. It obstructs our view and therefore it's best when we first begin to sense that bitterness is welling up inside of us. That it's starting to put down roots and grow. Even in times of painful loss, we have to capture it. We have to send it packing. We have to say, no, thank you, Mr. Bitterness. I would like to be able to see clearly with eyes of faith. Not to be blinded by your glasses. Not to be, have my vision obscured by your lenses, which will make everything that I see be interpreted in light of my bitterness. But you see, blindness isn't the only thing that bitterness causes. We see in Naomi's speech that bitterness doesn't just produce blindness, but it also provokes blame. Our second point this evening. As she begins to respond to the women of the city who have come out to greet her, she starts to offer an explanation of why it is only her and this Moabite albatross that is returned. In her mind, she has been done an injustice. And there's only one culprit to blame, God himself. In just a few lines of speech here, she levels four different accusations against God. She says that God has dealt very bitterly with her, that he has brought her home empty, that he has testified against her, and that he has afflicted her. Now, are these things true? Well, not as Naomi sees them. The Lord has not left her empty as we've already seen. She has Ruth. She has food. She is not empty. Yes, she has experienced loss. Yes, she has experienced 
suffering. Yes, the loss of a husband, the loss of children are terrible things, but she is not empty, as she says. Is she afflicted? Well, again, we have to place this in the context of the judges and what was going on in Israel during the time of the judges. The people had utterly forsaken God's word and his law. They were doing everything that seemed right in their own eyes. They were in rampant rebellion and disobedience. And so the affliction of God's people is due to their own sin, since he clearly promises that if they will just keep his law, he's going to bless them. He's going to bless them more than they can even handle. And all they have to do is walk in obedience. We've seen in Judges how well that went. She interprets her hardship as God testifying against her. She is taking these things personally. As if God has a vendetta against her. As if his finger is on her, crushing her beneath all of his divine weight. The problem is she doesn't understand how God may be using her hardship. Using this hardship to get her to where she needs to be. Imagine for just a moment if Elimelech and her sons were still living. Where would Naomi be? She'd still be in Moab. She'd be in a foreign land among a foreign people, raising children in the manner of foreigners. But the Lord needs Naomi and her daughter-in-law, through whom Jesus will come, to be in Bethlehem of Judea to accomplish his sovereign purposes. God is not exercising a vendetta against Naomi. He is saving her by bringing her back to where she needs to be. She and her family had been the ones that had tried to escape the consequences of Israel's corporate sin by fleeing when there was a famine rather than than recognizing the Lord's hand is against us because we have turned from Him. We need to repent. We need to seek the Lord. It's easy to flee when times get hard. It's a lot harder to stand firm, to ask yourself, Is there something in my life that I need to bring before the Lord? Do I need to repent? Do I need to seek the Lord? It's what they should have done, and yet they fled. But lest you think we're being too hard on Naomi, she isn't the only one in Scripture that responds to their bitterness by blaming God. Remember what happens immediately, immediately, after the people crossed the Red Sea. They had just witnessed one of the most remarkable miracles in all of the Old Testament, a miracle that's recounted time and time again through the Psalms, through the rest of the Scriptures. Their salvation from slavery slavery was realized once they set foot on the other side of the Red Sea. Egypt and her armies were decimated, and they had crossed on dry land. The Lord had done it. And they sing a song of praise to the Lord in Exodus chapter 15. They're singing and dancing. There's celebration. They know beyond a shadow of a doubt that they are free. And what happens immediately after that? In Exodus chapter 15, they come to bitter water. And they complain against Moses in what would become a recurring pattern. Exodus chapter 15, verses 22 through 24, we read, So, Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea 
Then they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Now when they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore the name of it was called Marah. And the people complained against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Time and time again, as the people faced hardship, they would complain to Moses, which was actually, we see in Exodus, a form of complaining against God. In the wilderness, Israel turned blaming God into an art form when they experienced hardship. Even though God continually demonstrated his love for them time and time and time again. Again, remember what they had just witnessed. They had just come from the Red Sea. They had seen the waters standing on its side. They had walked through the sea on dry land. Do you think that God could possibly make this bitter water drinkable? Could he possibly take the bitterness out of this water so that his people could survive? Absolutely. And so he will do for us. Removing the bitterness... God's people, Israel, were not the only ones. Perhaps the greatest sufferer in all of Scripture, Job, also turned his bitterness into complaint. In Job 27, verse 2, he says, As God lives, who has taken away my justice, and the Almighty, who has made my soul bitter. Who's done these things, Job? God has. He's taken away my justice. He's made my soul bitter. Ultimately, when Job goes too far in his accusations, God answers him. And in short, he reminds Job, Job, you are not God, but I am. He doesn't offer any explanation as to why he's experienced these things. He doesn't go into a theological treatise of of suffering. He, He says, Job, I'm God. And you need to remember that. You need to remember and trust my plans and trust my ways. They are not your ways. You don't understand what I'm doing, nor could you. Therefore, save your complaints. And Job responds, you're right. I'll put my hand over my mouth. I have spoken far too quickly. You are right, Lord. So first we are blinded, then we start to blame. There must be a cause for our bitterness that's outside of ourselves somewhere because it couldn't possibly be our sin-stained hearts that's causing us to be bitter. It couldn't possibly be from within us that our, our bitterness is springing up. And so our ultimate scapegoat is the Lord himself. But we need to remember, we are not God. Yes, God is Sovereign, And so, yes, every bitter pill we must swallow is by his design. But we had best reserve judgment until the whole story is played out. Naomi couldn't see that her arrival in Bethlehem on that day was a necessary precursor to the babe that would later be wrapped in swaddling cloths and laid in a manger in that same dusty town hundreds of years in the future. And so she blamed God for her misfortunes, not knowing that salvation was being wrought for all mankind. She blamed God because she couldn't imagine that just around the corner, something better was coming. Which brings us to our third point. 
Bitterness precedes blessings. The bitter trials that we often experience in this life are always, always, always temporary. They're always temporary. How do we know? Well, because one day you're going to die. And they're going to end at that point one way or the other. And so our bitter trials are always temporary. And sooner or later, even if we must endure them for long, lonely years, even if we walk through the valley of the shadow of death for year after year after year, even if there is no hope, no end in sight while life remains on this earth, they are temporary. And they will give way to sweetness for those that are in Christ. Think about the examples that we've already mentioned. In Exodus, when the people come to the bitter waters and complain, what did God do? What did God do for his people? We read in Exodus chapter 15, So he, Moses, cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. When he cast it into the waters, the waters were made sweet. The Lord took what was bitter, and he made it sweet, in order to provide blessings and life to his people. What was the end of Job's story? You can go back and read it later if you've forgotten. But at the end, the Lord blessed Job. He gave him twice as much as he had before. And his latter days were better than his earlier days. Out of bitterness, God brings sweetness and blessing. He will do the same for Naomi. As we progress through the story, you will see that not only will God turn Naomi's sorrow into joy by providing her food and shelter, But he's going to provide her with a redeemer and an heir. He's going to restore what was lost. He's going to secure her future, her possessions, her inheritance. He's going to raise up an heir for her. And so he does for all of us. You see, as I said earlier, we all will endure bitterness to one degree or another. But the bitterness that we endure, the bitterness that Naomi, and even the bitterness that Job endured, all of that bitterness pales in comparison to the bitterness that we deserve. You see, we deserve the bitter cup of God's wrath. That's what we deserve. That's the bitterness that should be poured out upon us. Yet that bitter cup we will not have to endure. And why is that? Because Jesus Christ, our Lord, has already drunk it dry. Remember how he prayed on the night before his crucifixion. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. As we read this, feel the anguish, feel the sorrow, the bitterness that our Lord endured on this evening. We'll pick up reading in verse 36. It says, Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, Sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply 
distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. True sorrow, right sorrow over what he was about to endure. But notice, you'll hear no complaining from Christ here. No complaining, no blindness from Christ. He knows what he's getting into. He doesn't see things through the lens of bitterness. He sees things through the lens of glory and what he's anticipating to come. He doesn't complain against God. No, he's going to say, as we're going to read in just a second, not my will, but yours. Jesus takes a far larger cup than we will ever have to drink. And he handles it rightly. Listen to his prayer. He went a little further and he fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping and said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time, he went away and prayed, saying, O my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Oh, my father. This cup, this this bitter cup, if there is any way that I can avoid taking this cup, may it be so. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours. The cup of God's wrath was far far more bitter than anything that Job or Naomi ever had to experience. It involved a myriad of pains and terrors that we could never imagine. For you see, it contained not just the wrath of God upon all of our sins, including Naomi's complaints as well as yours and mine, but it contained the effects of sin and brokenness found in the world including our diseases. What are we told in Isaiah? For by His stripes we are healed. Christ secured for us permanent healing, restoration, wholeness that may not be experienced in this life, but praise be to God, we will be made whole, given new bodies, full of life and vigor with no constraints like we experience today. He drank down cancer, diabetes, pancreatitis, mental and physical handicaps. He drank them all so we could be healed. The bitter cup contained the agony of loss as his perfect and infallible relationship with God the Father that it existed from all of eternity past, uninterrupted, untainted by sin, unhindered and unbroken was severed. This cup, this this bitter cup that Christ drank for us contained in it the bitter sting of death. Not just Christ's own death. Not just death for Elimelech and his sons. Not just for Job's sons and daughters. Not just for my great-grandmother, her 
daughter and her husband, but for all of mankind. The death of every saint, every bitter departure, every loss, every separation, Jesus drank it down for us so that our death would not be permanent, would be temporary, so that we could be raised to life again. Took death into his own body for us. That is why when we mourn, we know that we are not alone. Christ has already endured the loss that we are feeling in that moment. Only he endured it and multiplied hundreds of millions of times over. And so that's why our complaining in our sorrow is foolish. That's why we must open our eyes and look through the bitterness that blinds us. Because Christ has already drunk the bitter cup of sin, wrath, sickness, and death for us. He took our portion, my portion, your portion, and he took it so that we don't have to. So that when we die, we will be transported to glory. To be with him forever. Just as God turned the bitter waters of Mara sweet with a tree, so too does he turn the bitter waters of our suffering sweet in the cross of Christ. And so we may endure this present bitterness for a while, perhaps even a long while. But what does Paul say? He says that our momentary light affliction is not worthy to be compared with the the future, the eternal weight of glory that awaits us. And what will that be like? What will it be like when we finally and fully get to embrace the sweetness that the Lord has provided to us? Well, we don't have to wonder because we're told. In Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 5, John writes, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people." God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write. For these words, these words are true and faithful. I'm making all things new. I will wipe away every tear. There will be no sorrow, no pain, no death. That's why Christ endured the cross for us. That's why he drank down the bitterness that we deserve. So that we might experience the sweetness of his blessings. He is making all things new. And we see this hinted at even back in Ruth's story. At the end of this chapter, what are the final words that we read? They arrived at Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. After years of famine, the hills were green again. They'd come home. 
and there were blessings awaiting them. You may be in the midst of a famine even now. You may be in the midst of turmoil, loss, bitterness, suffering. Do not grow bitter. Instead, anticipate the green hills of God's kingdom. And look for the sprouts that announce that it's coming. And rejoice in the fact that the bitter cup has already been turned up and drunk dry by our Savior. So that all that is left for us is sweetness. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you this evening that we do not have to endure the suffering that Christ endured on our behalf. Lord, when we experience loss, we rightly mourn because we are reminded that sin still exists in the world and the wages of sin is death. But Lord, that will not always be so. And so I pray that you would protect and preserve us against bitterness, even now, as it has a tendency to well up in our sin-stained hearts. Help us, Lord, not to become blinded so that we would blame you, but instead look to the blessings that are ours in Christ because he has taken it from us. He's taken the bitterness and he has drank it. The the, the bitterness that we deserved, he has took it into himself on his cross. And by that tree, Lord, you have made our bitter waters sweet. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to hold fast to this truth and confidence, knowing that whatever challenges we endure this week, they are temporary. They're momentary. They are light in comparison to the weight of glory that awaits us. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.